Morning, everyone. Nice to be back with you. Thank you particularly those of you who remember to pray for me last weekend. Um, had a fairly busy time, but uh, was really helped and had a sense of being helped. It's not always the case when you're preaching, but certainly did have an awareness and uh, had a number of letters and responses to that long weekend, which began Saturday morning and finished on Monday evening. So thank you for your prayers, and it's really good to be back with you again. Jill, sorry she's not here. Uh, she's been inducted as a mother hen in a hen party uh, for one of her nieces, and I think is semi-enjoying herself in Bath at the minute, but I'll find out a bit more this evening when I get home. I was reading in the epistle that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, which was a hugely idolatrous area, and uh, Roman dominated whatever the Apostle Paul wrote. And he says to the church at Corinth that the things in the Old Testament were written for our learning and for our instruction. And I want this morning to continue our studies in the book of Joshua. With that in mind, these things are written for our instruction And we're reading this morning in Joshua chapter 4, and reading from verse 4 through to verse 18. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the twelve stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. Now the priests who carried the Ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, armed, in front of the Israelites as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord, to the plains of Jericho for war. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him all the days of his life, just as they had revered Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground 
Then the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran in flood as before. Interesting that Graham reminded us of the miracle of the gift of the 153 great fish to Peter and the other disciples. It's interesting too how often we catch nothing, mainly because we're responding to our own promptings. As Graham led to, read to us, remember that Peter said to the other disciples, I'm going fishing. And the other said, we'll come with you. They just had the notion they would go fishing. And sometimes we're a bit like that. We just do what comes into our head. And then after it's all gone wrong, we say to the Lord, need you to intervene? I often wonder why Peter wasn't broke financially before the Lord met him. Because I think every time he goes fishing in the Bible, he catches nothing. I know some of you men are like that as well. There's a dear friend of mine, Stan Orman, in Pinehurst Chapel in West Moors, who died recently. He was buried just last week. And Stan used to go fishing, and he invited me one day to go fishing with him. So I went fishing with him, and neither Stan nor I caught anything. Though it was a stretch of river that he knew quite well. So I said to him afterwards, that's the first and last time I'm going fishing. Now, I know some of you have made a lifetime out of it, but uh, it wasn't my scene. And there are all sorts of things happening here about this river, which are most interesting. Whenever <coughs> Paul is writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, he says that the first part of the nation that went through the Red Sea were all baptized in the Red Sea. It was a signal of their death to the land of Egypt and they're moving into a new realm with God. And I think it seems fairly evident that what's happening here in relation to the Ark of the Covenant and the stopping of the waters that were flowing is a picture of how the Lord Jesus dealt with death for you and I. Because the scripture says that he entered into death. He entered into death. Very peculiar statement. And through death he destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered us who through fear of death were all our lifetimes subject to bondage. The fear of death is annulled for the Christian. None of us look forward to the process. But death is the portal into the presence of Christ. Death is the process through which the Saviour takes us into eternal life. The best is yet to be. You know, sometimes when I'm talking to Christian people, I sort of feel they're not altogether sure about that. But let me reassure you, the best is yet to be. And for these people who had wandered in the desert for 40 years, when they reached the shores of the Jordan, one of the things that they recognized was that the land was fruitful. They were going to that which was going to be a great place of blessing to them. So I want to examine this passage just very simply this morning. And I want to look at the, the sign which is given in the stones. The sign which is given in the stones. And the leader which is established through the event 
and then very briefly at the end to look at the second miracle that we have at the end of our reading. So let's go back to the passage. Thank you, Kevin. And we'll go back to verse 4. And you'll notice that Joshua has already made preparation and has said to these representatives of the 12 tribes, you're to take one stone from the bed of the River Jordan. Now, I want to ask a, a very straightforward question. What size do you think the stones were? There's all sorts of clues in the passage. What size do you think the stones were? Richard thinks about so big. They were carried on the shoulder, so they were probably too heavy to be carried in their arms or hands. And most men can fairly easily handle, handle something about a hundredweight in their arms. So here are 12 men, and they're carrying a burden. And they bring it up out of the Jordan, and they lay it down at this place, which we discover later in the chapter is called Gilgal. And this became a hugely important place in the conquest of the land of Canaan. In fact, the people came back to Gilgal again and again and again. If you read through the book of Joshua, and we won't be looking at all of it during our studies this year, but if you read through the book of Joshua, they come back again and again to this base of operations, to this bridgehead, this place from where all of their future blessings were to come. And they kept coming back to it. And I'll be looking at a little of the picture that that gives us when we come together this evening. But they had to carry these out. It was a considerable burden. And they carried them out. And you'll notice what Joshua says in verse 5. Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each one of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of Israel. So the stone represents the tribes. It's perfectly straightforward, isn't it? That's what the the book says. So each stone represented a tribe, and all of the tribes or representative of the tribes went through the Jordan. So all of the people of God were going through the Jordan in order to get to the other side. It was part of the big plan. They were on their way, and they all had to take a token of the fact that they had gone through the Jordan and gone to the other side. And you'll notice that Joshua is on to say, this is according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. As a sign of what? Well, as a sign, firstly, that the waters of the Jordan had been stopped that in a miraculous way God had intervened to provide a passage through this barrier in order to bring them into the land of promise. And they were there to serve as a sign, to, to give this emphasis to their thinking that God was amongst them, that this living God who had brought their forefathers out of the land of Egypt was amongst the next generation, that he hadn't abandoned the people that he still had purpose for them. And this picture, which speaks so clearly of entering into a form of death, of which more this evening, this picture demonstrates and continues to demonstrate to the Israelites that God had stopped that which was going to cause their death 
but was indicative of that which he was going to continue to do amongst them. This was to be a sign. These stones were to be a sign for them. So they're carried on the shoulder. They were there for a sign. And you'll notice that immediately, Joshua goes on to say, and I just love the continuity of this, in the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? What do these stones mean? Why were they carried out? Tell them that the floor of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. In other words, it was to be constantly communicated among successive generations that the ark of the covenant of the Lord, this covenant, this promise that God had made to be among his people, was something that was effective in the life and history of the people. It wasn't just a box. It was a statement of the presence of God amongst them. And whenever God had intervened in this way, they were to be constantly reminded of the fact that it was God who had brought them through the wilderness and God who had brought them into the promised land. It was God who had given them a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to demonstrate his presence amongst them. And can I I say very clearly to each of our hearts this morning that God wants us to recognize that he's amongst us. You know, our Christianity is not some sort of theory that functions for a wee while on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings. It's, It's about God being in amongst us. It's about God having the direction of our lives. It's about God constantly demonstrating to us that he has got further purpose for us. And by saying to these people, in future when your children ask you, or successive generations, because that's the word, that he has, he's has he got a continuity for them. And one of the things I love about uh, being in a communion service or breaking a bread service is to recognize that we're doing something that Christians 2,000 years ago were doing. And we're making the same statements as Christian 2,000 years ago were doing. That Christ is amongst us. That Christ is alive. There has been successive generations who have constantly experienced the closeness of God in their living. And it's an amazing thing that we can look back on about 2,000 years of Christian history and recognize that the fact that this is here this morning is a demonstration of the continuity of the remembrance of generation of Christians, generation after generation after generation. You're part of a big picture. And there's just a few of us here this morning. But there's about six million Christians in Europe today who will be breaking bread together. Don't look so pleased about it. In fact, if I could pick up from uh, one of the statements which I came across just the other day, there's about a million new Christians every week. I don't look so pleased by that. But approximately a million new Christians every week come to real faith in the Lord Jesus. We're not keeping pace with the population development, but there's still an ongoing repopulation of the Christian church. Because we're part of this big continuum. And when your youngsters ask you, Dad, how did you become a Christian? Mom, how how did you become a Christian? Please don't be afraid to tell them. You know, we're to share this, 
business of being involved with God as he intervenes for his people. Tell them that the floor of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The last phrase of verse 7. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial. So here's the second lesson to learn from it. There's this whole question of recognizing that it's a sign of what God has done, but it's to be established in our memory. So there's a continuity of mind, if I can express it like that. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So what are the three obvious lessons? Well, first of all, we need to be reliant upon God. There wasn't any way the children of Israel were crossing the river when it was in flood unless God intervened. And they had to rely upon him. And I can imagine some wee fellas, and maybe some wee girls, going past the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and having a look at it and think to themselves, what's going on here? And then thinking to themselves, there's a big river here a minute ago, one of us is going to come around the bend and wash us all away. Because trust in God has to work when there's danger around and when there's difficulty. Trust in God has got to work when things get rough. Otherwise we're not trusting him, are we? If we only trust him when it's good, then it doesn't need a lot of faith. But when the chips are down, then I recognize the reality of the intervention of God. We need to be reliant upon God. We need to recognize his presence amongst us. I say this carefully, but I can remember coming to the table at times to take communion. I wasn't, and I wasn't really aware of the presence of the Lord. I was living a life which was out of touch with him. And from when I was 18 until I was about 21 and a half, I had a real crisis of faith in my life. I was still going through the motions. I was still saying effectively to other people, well, I'm in communion with the Lord Jesus, but I wasn't. My heart was, my heart was out of touch with him. It's so easy, isn't it? Did we really think about the Lord's death for us when we were taking the bread and wine this morning? Do we really recognize his immediacy? His presence? And it's also, as a memorial, it's a reflection on the past. Not a past which is dead, but a past which is alive. You know, the Lord went on to say to Peter in John 21, you've got a job to do, as Graham emphasized. You've got to feed my lambs, you've got to tend my, you've got to tend my lambs, you've got to feed my sheep. And when I was 21, that spoke to my heart. And it became my life's work. I didn't know at the time it was going to become my life's work. We have a responsibility, my dear brothers and sisters, to each other, to care for one another, to feed one another, to share the reality of our faith. And then verses 13 and 14. You have this, this emphasis where somehow or other this establishes Joshua's leadership amongst the Israelites. It's almost like um, what God is doing here is not just demonstrating his power over the water, 
But to help the people recognize that Joshua has been appointed by God as their leader. And you notice what verses 13 and 14 says. 40,000 armed for battle, that's of the two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. And that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they revered him all the days of his life, just as they had revered Moses. Now you'll notice at, at the end of verse 13, you have this little phrase about the plains of Jericho, which is going to be the next section of the book. This huge, strong citadel, which was the headquarters of the Canaanites in the land, the southern part of the land. And, you know, it's almost like God is saying, like, I've dealt with this obstacle of the river, so don't worry about the big city. I've got a way of dealing with that as well. And, of course, this was to be the, the ongoing experience of the Israelites. God always deals with our difficulties because he's been there before us. You know, this whole question of recognizing his immediacy is so that what's going on in my little life today, I can bring before the Lord and I'll say, Lord, you know all about this. You know what's going on with me. You know the sort of situations that I'm facing. And even though Jericho looms large, nevertheless, I'm going to trust you. Because this river, when it came back into flood, cut off a retreat. You recognize that, don't you? It cut off any possibility of going backwards. They had to keep going forwards. And that, of course, is our life. So what's this about this verse 14? That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. Because if you go back in the passage... You'll see that God speaks to Joshua, and then Joshua tells the Israelites. You find it again and again, from, verse, from chapter 2 onwards. God speaks to Joshua, and then Joshua speaks. God speaks to Joshua, Joshua speaks. What had Joshua got to do with the stopping of the river? Nothing. Who stopped the river? The Lord stopped the river. Yeah? But the priests had a part to play. And Joshua had a part to play. And Joshua's part to play was to say what God had said. And you notice that? Um, let me pick it up if I may. Joshua said, verse 9 of chapter 2, uh, chapter 3, don't, don't find it if you, if you can't, Kevin, don't worry. Joshua said to the Israelites, verse 9 of chapter 3, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and he'll certainly drive out the nations from in front of you. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you, and so on. And he keeps all telling them what the Lord says. And he commands the priests to do what the Lord says. And he commands the people to do what the Lord says. So how does this man be exalted? Because he's doing what God says. You know, his leadership was dependent as Moses 
was dependent in the previous generation. It was dependent on him relaying the purpose of God to the people of God. That was Joshua's ongoing responsibility. And here as they face this great river, God has said to Joshua, you put the ark into the middle of the thing. You get that right in the center of your thinking, right in the center of the people. You allow me to lead the people through the Jordan. And God then exalts Joshua on the basis of Joshua's obedience. Now, you will recognize that that is an abiding principle right through the Bible. Men become great in the eyes of the Lord because they do what the Lord tells them. The danger that most of us have is we want to do what people say and please them. And I include myself in that. Our responsibility, my dear brothers and sisters, is to do what the Lord tells us to do. And the Lord honors it. You know, the the book says, them that honor me, I will honor you honor the Lord in your life, however difficult it is, however hard it is. Just honor the Lord in your life, and he will bring honor. He will honor you. And, uh, you know, honor your father and mother. Your days may be long on the earth, and so forth and so on. There's promises associated with this whole question of honoring. But the most important thing in my fragile life, as I look forward to every day the Lord has left for me, I want to honor him above all else. I want to do what he tells me. And on that basis, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel because they saw what happened. They recognized that here was a man who was relaying the purpose of God to them as a people. And as they, I was going to say, followed in those steps, they recognized who Joshua truly was. Warfare is going to be imminent. And the Lord blesses as Joshua leads, and that's going to become increasingly evident. So in verses 4 and 5, Joshua gives the directions. In verse 7, Joshua gives the teaching of the stones as a memorial forever what the Lord has done. Verse 8, Joshua does as the Lord told Joshua. Verse 10, everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people. So in verse 14, the Lord exalts, exalts Joshua. doesn't mean he puts him on a big pedestal because the people were still going to argue with him and so forth and so on as you discover later on in the book. But from this point on, they recognize that Joshua was a man who was prepared to obey the Lord. And finally, this second miracle, verses 15 through 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, and again you have this emphasis. Then the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests carrying the Ark of the Testament to come up out of the Jordan. Now I've often wondered about these priests. If the Bible doesn't give a divulgence of what's going on in their heads and it's just as well because as their toes touch the water you'll remember from previous lessons as the toes touch the water the water stopped they've been standing in the middle of the Jordan for quite a while as the people pass over even though the people hurried over but what do you think once the people have gone and you're still standing there and you're still holding the Ark of the Covenant and you think, yeah, what's happened next? A number of things that are so obvious here. They didn't move until the Lord told them to move. So easy to run ahead of them, isn't it? So easy to think, well, I know better and I know what to do next. But we don't. Every day is a new day that the Lord gives us. 
and we have absolutely no idea what's going to happen in it. It's, it's all about just taking a step, following him, deciding when you're going to overtake or when you're not going to overtake if you're driving your motor car. Talking to the Lord about your journey before you leave. Of course there are Christians who die in car crashes. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Lord being in control as far as our little life is concerned. So, command the priest carrying the Ark of the Testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So, so, so easy to read it. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And the priests come up out of the river, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner, now remember, the, the river's a mile wide, okay? So they half a mile to walk, yeah? And the banks of the river occur before they get to dry land. But the river's still in flood. You notice what it says here. The priests come up out of the river carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground beyond the borders of the flood than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran in flood as before. The waters returned to their place. Now, think about this for a minute. And this was how my simple mind works. The waters have piled up at a place called Adam, which is probably about seven miles north of where this particular crossing took place. And the water has still been flowing, coming down to Adam from the north. Yeah? So is there more water at that point than there had been previously? Yeah? I mean, am I bound to be in there? Because it says distinctly in Scripture that the water stopped at Adam, okay? Didn't stop at the source, which is Caesarea, way up in the north. Didn't stop at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. It stopped there, so the waters from above must have continued to flow. And that's why I call this the second miracle. Notice again what the Scripture says. The waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran in flood as before. So the Lord somehow or other, in the way that he does for his people, didn't allow him to be swamped. You know, there's a dam just been breached, uh, as you know. Anybody remember what it was? Hmm? Yeah. Where? Puerto Rico, yeah? And, you know, it's caused all sorts of problems. And here's a dam that's been breached as the Lord releases the waters again. But it doesn't cause any problems to the people. Because God controls the flood to confine it within its previous boundaries. And you'll notice this, as soon as the priest's feet touch the dry ground, that the waters returned. And you probably think to yourself, why, why does God do that? Because that's what God does. I, I, I use the term carefully. He works at both ends of the equation. 
You know, he doesn't cause somebody to happen and it causes ructions unless he's designed it to cause ructions. Whenever God intervenes for his people, he does it in an ordered way. He, he does it under his control. It's not out of control. And as you and I face the particular issues of this week, we need to recognize that whatever happens in our life, it's the Lord who controls it. It's the Lord who's the boss. It's the Lord who shapes the flood. And when the enemy gets in for, for like the flood, it's the Lord who raises up a standard against them. And as you and I face the particular difficulties of our tiny lives or the joys of our life, the Lord meters them out to us, and I use the term carefully. It's part of his plan. And it's really hard at times to get our heads around that. Because if we were planning for one another, we would plan all sorts of lovely things. But part of his plan is to take us to glory. Part of his plan. And he will control that entry according to his wider purpose. Of which at this particular moment we have no inkling. You know, we don't know. But he knows. And I know that he cares because he gave his son to die for me on a cross. So I can trust him. We're going to pray and then we're going to sing our closing song. Father, we recognize the need for dependence upon you. We recognize the need for memory. We want to look back and remember those things that you have done in our lives, those things that have been a real blessing, the people you brought us into contact with, the various messages we've heard down the years which have been uh, so helpful to us. And we do pray that in the fragility of our lives, we might recognize that you are the God in whose hand our breath is, that you are the one in whom we trust. And we recognize that as you brought this people through the river, this picture of death, as you brought them into this land of promise, you were fulfilling that which you had said to Abram more than 400 years ago, that you would bring them back into this land. And Father, sometimes your ways are mysterious to us and we recognize that part of that is to help us to trust you. It's easy sometimes, Lord, to, to trust you when we think we know in the next few days, but to trust you when we don't and to recognize that we don't is really the blessing in our Christian living. And we, we just pray that you will work these things through in our lives, that we'll recognize your hand and remember you in all sorts of ways as our life goes on. So into your hands, Father, we commit our spirits. In Jesus' name.